0: We are at Paul's letter to the Galatians in uh, chapter 4. As we finish out April, we're coming up on commencement time. We have a lot of college students who are coming up on finals or have taken finals or in the middle of finals. There are some who will be graduating and uh, be going through commencement. I want to read you a little portion from a famous speech by a very non-religious uh, David Foster Wallace, who is a fiction writer he's in writing speaking to the college graduates he said in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there's actually no such thing as atheism there's no such thing as not worshiping everybody worships the only choice we get is what to worship and an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already, it's been codified as myths and proverbs and cliches and bromides and epigrams and parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you'll feel weak and afraid. And you'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. He says, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. Pretty insightful for such an irreligious guy. I mean, both his parents were professors and were atheists, and uh, pretty insightful. It's great counsel for graduates who are about to embark on life in the world. Ironically, it parallels what we're going to see the Apostle Paul actually talk about in today's passage. So I, I want to ask you to join me. He's going to say, look out, idols are enslaving just like Wallace said, he says, whether they're pagan idols or whether they're Christian idols. So we're going to start reading verses, we're just reading verses 8 through 11 of Galatians chapter 4. Uh, so hear God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You've heard from the Lord. Let's pray and ask him to help us piece this together and see how it connects with our lives. Our Father, uh, as As you revealed through the Apostle Paul and as even uh, one who is not connected to you recognized in the world that we are enslaved or controlled uh, to to the gods that we either construct, things that we chase for life, when you are the one who gives life, who promises life and provides life. So help us understand how how this works and how it is we veer off course and how it is you've drawn us back. And so we look for you, ask for your help this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now the point of this passage, just to sum it up, Paul says... He's, he's writing to these churches in Galatia. If you're just here with us this morning, you've been missing part of the series. Galatia is not a city. Paul does write letters to church to a city, to a particular church in a city. Galatia was actually a group of cities, Lystra, Derbe, Laodicea, or some of them, that he, some of the first churches he went to and evangelized and started churches in. So he's writing this letter to, to be circulated around these churches. After Paul had gone there and preached and people had turned to him, and he moved on. there were some other teachers that came up from Jerusalem, and they said, "Well what Paul said about Jesus was true, but they, if he didn't give you the whole scoop, you, you need to become basically you need, you need to follow all of the, the Torah, the, the Jewish rules, the circumcision, uh, the feasts as we've talked about, the days and months and seasons and years. If you do those things, then you'll be acceptable to God, then you'll be." justified you'll be accepted and so they 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 basically Paul is saying to this group of people he said look you were there in Galatia and you're worshiping all these other gods all these pagan gods these mystery religions astrology you're worshiping all these other uh, gods of, of your day and of your city and then you came to know Jesus But now you just slid right off the page onto the other side. You've overcompensated, and now you've started relying on a bunch of things you can do again to bring yourself hope. When the God who whom you know and who knows you, he has already made you acceptable. He's done the work. Jesus Christ, the reason he came was to do the work that you can't do and you don't do. And he's done it in your place. And he died to pay for your failure so you can't go and make up the failure yourself. You've just got to receive what Jesus has done. Now, when we hear that, that may sound like how could that even be a comparison? That I rely on what I do and the treadmill that's involved there or rely on what God has provided for me. But the reason it's hard to rely on what God has provided for me is because it's charity. And if you're at all competent or at all driven, there are few things that are more reprehensible to your pride and your ego than to be a recipient of charity. And not just to start as a recipient of charity, but to realize, to, to say, that's me every day of my life. And that's what it is. Paul's saying that's what it is to be a Christian it's a gift. You can't earn it, and if you're relying on what you do, you've fallen right back into the same slavery that you were doing before. So it's idol worship, whether it's pagan worship, or whether it's trying to rely on your ability to do the things of of the faith. Let, Let me start out. You may here idolatry and you're thinking, what does it have to do with me? The first thing I want to look at really briefly with you is that idolatry is relevant because it deals with the heart. It, idols are not out just outside of us. You think of little statues and so on. I won't go into that. But listen to what the, Apost- what the prophet Ezekiel, hundreds of years before Christ. He wrote and he said, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts. See, for God, the issue wasn't, I mean, he, he commanded them not to carve pieces of wood. Lots of commandments about that. But the issue wasn't the piece of wood. The issue was the love. Like Tim was talking about with the children. What, what's the love of my heart? What, the, the love of my heart is what captures and drives my motivations. Idols of the heart, Dave Paulison wrote, he said, it, it, when I have something or someone besides Jesus who's taken title of, of your heart's trust, or of your heart's loyalty, or pre, the preoccupation of your heart, the, the service of your heart, the fear. What, what do you fear? What do you delight in? That's a picture of what it is. Whatever is taken title of your heart, because you trust it, because you fear it, because you serve it, it's become an alternative God. Does that make sense? I mean, because tr- what you trust most, what you, it's not only what you love, it's what you trust. It's what you fear really has power. That's the almighty God. And if what you fear or what you trust or what you hope or what what you dread is bigger than God, then all of a sudden God has become a little God with a little G. And that's what Paul's talking about. I mean, God deserves our trust. God deserves our fear because he is almighty. He says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. He, he deserves our, our, our life. He, he promises us life if we serve him. And so... He's, he's worthy, he's a legitimate focus of our heart trust. But if we raise anybody or anything else higher than that, then, then it's off kilter. And an alternative God becomes an alternative hope. So hope and God and idol, trust, those are all equivalent concepts. In the Bible, the motivation question always comes down to what what, what is your heart drawn by? What is... What is your God? That's what's going to rule your behavior. That's what your God is. Here's my thumbnail definition of, of how do you determine if something becomes an idol. By the way, you're going to see as we get into this, every single one of us have idols. Okay, we all have our personal pantheon. And uh, it's, you have to kind of learn what, what are the things you're drawn to. And if, whether, whether you're a Christian, whether you're not, you, you have things that you will slide into idolatry and slide out of di- idolatry. So it's not always like it's permanent. I wake up in the morning, I see these idols, so I try to clear out my pantheon, repent of those things, turn over, and I wake up the next morning and open the doors and it's all full again. The, a desi- God gives us desires. He gives us legitimate desires to, to motivate us, to move, move us in life. There's also illegitimate desires. When a desire... Because the desire is lower than God. We can say, God, these are the things I'd like, but I trust you to run my life and to provide for me as you and your wisdom and goodness know I need. But when my desire becomes a demand, I must have this, then it kind of slides into being a need. Then it has all of a sudden become higher than God. God, I must have this, and I'm willing to push you to the side if I don't have that. Does that make sense? You know how desires turn into needs? If you have children, Daddy, I need. You ever heard that? <laughs> Mommy, I need. And there are always things that are desperately needed, right? It's, it's, the, it's the slide over into you know, what, is, what is needed and what is not needed. So what's tricky is we can often make idols out of good things. In fact, even in verse 10... The, Paul says, You observe days and months and seasons and years. The days, some of the days that they were observing were the Sabbath days. Well, that's good. God commanded them to keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath's one of the Ten Commandments. We haven't backed off into nine commandments. There's still Ten Commandments. It, comes it was built into the creation that we worship God one day a week. So he's not saying it's bad that you honor this, you obey the Sabbath, but they they had been taught and they were believing the fact that In order to be acceptable to God, I've got to keep the Sabbath. Now, the irony is, it's really dumb to not keep the Sabbath. Okay, It's it's self-limiting and debilitating because God has built into and promised blessing upon keeping the Sabbath. But your acceptability to him is not based on that, it's based on whether or not you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who makes you acceptable or unacceptable. It's all based in him. And so if t- you can turn people, you can turn days. We, last week was Easter. You know, Easter is not commanded anywhere in the Bible. Christmas isn't commanded anywhere in the Bible. Some people kind of elevate Christmas or Easter like they're a holy day. All the days are the same. The, the, the Sabbath is the holy day. Every, every Sunday is, is celebrating the resurrection. Now, it's good and appropriate to ponder the incarnation, God becoming man at Christmas. And so we, that's why we worship God. That's why we spend time around Christmas. But it's not that it becomes holy. That was the slippage they made, was that they thought that day was higher and more lifted up. But That was not ever what God said. It's just it was a good time to think about it, to, to reflect on it. So it's easy to take something that's good and all of a sudden have it become the most central part of my life. If you look inside the the cover of your bulletin to the meditation richard keys uh, in this quote talks about idols and a few lines down he says how do we determine when something is an idol he says as soon as our loyalty to anything leads us to disobey god we're in danger of making an idol And here's a couple of examples he gives he says work which is a commandment of god so work's a good thing it was built in before the fall He says, work can become an idol if it's pursued so exclusively that responsibilities to one's family are ignored. Family, an institution of God. God has created family, himself, can become an idol if you're so preoccupied with the family that no one outside of one's own family is taken care of, for example. Being well-liked, which is a perfectly legitimate desire, a hope, becomes an idol if the attachment to it means that one never risks disapproval or one's never, yeah, in, in all sorts of different kinds of ways. Those are just a few little examples of, of ways that good things can become mostly important to us. Let's, let's step back for a second and I want you to look with me at why that idolatry matters because God, God really wants loyalty. That, that's why this is an issue. I mean, Paul is lovingly pleading. I hope you picked up on that when we read that passage. The, the loving pleading. He says, yeah, I feel like I've labored over you in vain, like I've wasted my time. Like I care passionately for y'all. He says, You now know God. You, you, you know him. Or he says, Or better, yeah, you've been known by God. And the word know isn't just cognitive knowledge, it's not just an intellectual knowledge. It's not that you know facts about God or facts about Jesus. The, the, the Greek word ties back to the, the concept of the Hebrew word yada, in which the word know is, involves this intimacy, this relational connection. That biblically the concept of knowing is not knowing facts, it's knowing people. If you have an old King James version, it talks about how Adam knew Eve. That's what's being expressed there. There was this deep, deep, personal, intimate knowledge. He says, you know God. You've become united to God. He has connected to you. You're you're with him. You know him in the, in the, the deepest core of your being. And now all of a sudden you're running over to all these other things instead. See, God is a jealous God. The second commandment in Exodus 20 Moses, God tells Moses, and Moses passes on to the people, he says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven above, or that is on earth beneath, or under the, that is in the water under the earth, okay, so that's idols, right, and then we've learned from Ezekiel, you can take those into your heart, but he says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, why, the reason, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we hear jealousy, and we think, that's not good. But you see, the reason God has always chosen marriage as an analogy for his relationship with us is the, the, the unity, the, his, his jealousy is a, a pure and holy jealousy. He says, I've given my love to you. I've been faithful for you, to you. I'm perfectly good towards you. Everything I, I do is for on your behalf. And so to turn away from me, is just stirs my heart that's why i mean the old testament god used the prophet hosea this whole the the, his entire ministry was his marriage he was married to a tramp and she kept running out on him and god said he he knew it on the front end god said this is what she's like and this is who you're going to marry and hosea like you know but he did it and sure enough She was like an alley cat when running out, and and he wouldn't pursue her. And God said, I want you to keep doing that because you're showing Israel what my relationship with Israel is like. Israel's an alley cat just like Gomer. And that was the picture he gave in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul talks about marriage as a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. Jealousy is his self-designation. It's not something I'm putting on him. I mean, look in Exodus 34, it says, You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars, cut down their ashram. Those are all the, those are all the Canaanite gods and worship areas in their in their land. He says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Hundreds of years later, Nahum, the prophet, he says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. There's no other way to go to the Father except through me. He said, there's, there's a uniqueness here. And so, what's tied in with, with, with idolatry is God's loving heart, and it's really a betrayal. It's an adulterous betrayal. Uh, that's why in James he says, You adulteresses, how can you do these things? In 1 John chapter 5, and 1 John is a letter that John writes, one of the last letters of the New Testament, and the very last sentence, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So it's not an Old Testament concept. It's a New Testament concept too. But they didn't have the little statues and so on as much in his day. But he says, "Why?" Well, notice the verse right before it. He keeps talking about, we know him who is true. We are in him who is true. He is the true God. So you've got a contrast between the true God and these idols so so God God cares this 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 isn't new or unique with Paul, John talks about it, God talked about it all through the Old Testament, and so this is why it matters okay it's not just about your psychological health it's about it's about god it's not about you or me it's about him and who he is uh, and but the reason he has wrath is because he has deep, deep, deep love, he has a pursuing love, he wants your heart he is has allegiance to you alone. And he wants you to have allegiance and me to have allegiance to, to him alone. He wants everyone to have that. And so that's why he draws these lines. He, the love that he has is life-giving. Okay. His, he's the, he sacrificed his life to give us life. I mean, that's what we just celebrated at Easter, right? On the cross, Jesus, God sent his son to live and die in our place so that we would have life. And because he's resurrected, we've been raised up with him. Let me spend these last few minutes just talking about some application. What, what, What does this look like in our lives? God's love gives us life. And we will worship that which we believe gives us life. And you're gonna worship the Lord to the degree you really believe that God gives you life, that Jesus is the source, that you're gonna drive life and hope and richness and peace and joy from, you're gonna worship, him. you're gonna pursue him with, with love, and, and that'll that'll spill out, that'll play out in the way you live your life. Or if you find other things that you will believe will bring you life, you'll pursue those. And you'll pursue those more than him, or you'll pursue those to the neglect of him, or you'll pursue those to, to the hurt of other people to the degree that you believe they. They have life, and so it's not always just life in the cosmic way. Sometimes it's life in in little bits and pieces, and and what you think will bring life varies. For some people, they think looks are going to bring them life, and either they they want to they they feel they have the looks and they want to preserve it, or they hate everybody else because they feel they don't have them. But that's where life is to be found, or they may feel I can cover up, I can use clothes, and so that that'll be how I'll it's. And again. It's, you know, God gives us eyes, okay? And he gives us technical. He gives most of us technical. color of us are colorblind. But <laughs> he, gives us, he gives us eyes to see beauty and to treasure those things. But when it becomes uh, a must, when it moves from a desire to a demand, I've got to have this. If this isn't in my life, then everything just falls apart if you feel like you've lost that area. Uh, but that's just the, w- one of uh, many different areas. It could be things like cleanliness, it could be prestige or safety. Successful children, if, I, if, my, if my children do well, if they grow up right, then I'm okay. If they don't, everything falls apart. Now, that's a legitimate desire. I mean, God gave you your children for a reason. He wants you to love them and to tre- treasure them and to grow them up. But he wants you to turn them over to him and to rely on him. And, and to trust him for them. And and you know children know if you do things, for example, if you're correcting them because you're worried about how you look or if you're correcting them because you're caring about the impact on them. right They, they know when they feel like they're being used or when they're really being loved and cared for. Correction can be caring or correction can be using. Does that make sense? Or loving, being very affectionate it can be caring or it may be using them to get your... To have your children love you or care for you, uh, in a way that's not healthy. Sometimes we want recognition or our reputation is. High. You know the phrase "What floats your boat"? That's a good indication. <laughs> what 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 is it that really floats my boat? That's a good window into into my pantheon. What are some of the kind of things that that become gods uh, in my life? Uh, they they bring rotten fruit. Let me give let me give an example. Say say what I. Desire in my life is order. Uh, I like tidiness. So Margaret knows I'm being conceptual in this. This is hypothetical. <laughs> uh, that, that, that what really drives me is, is a yearning for things to be, you know, in, in their right places and order. And again, that there's nothing wrong. God is a God of order. Okay, so there's an aspect of that, and I'm made in God's image, and that's part of why that resonates with me. But if if that desire becomes a demand, a need, that I can, can begin to turn on those around me who threaten disorder or who don't have the same drive I have for order and demand that they bow to my God and if they don't, I'll sacrifice them on the altar of my God. Right? That's just, that's just one little example. Might be, maybe it's the idol of reputation. I want people to like me. And so if, if there's a hint that somebody's pointing out something where I have an error, uh, I, get all, I get real defensive or I turn on them, or, or I, you know, I run away, or I, or I try to pretend I'm not who I am. I do something to, again, to place that person to sacrifice them in the altar of my idol because as long as I'm being well thought of, then I'm okay. Are, are you, you know, we, we just came through Lent, and we talk about self-denial. Uh, In those areas of that thing I really feel I want that will give me life, part of what fasting is about is saying, let me take an area of something I I want and I desire. The fasting always connects with me because I always want food. Okay, That's easy, to desire food. Am I willing to stop and say, Lord, for this season, I'm going to not have this because I want to remind myself. Every time all that hunger starts gnawing at me, and it's real hunger, Okay, the key to fasting isn't that God takes your hunger away. The key to fasting is God makes you more hungry and you keep looking at him and say, Lord, I'm going to trust you that I'm not going to be so demanding that I'm going to run over everybody in my way because I'm hangry right now and, uh, and, and, and fix myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to entrust you with this self-denial because I know you're the one who will bring me life, not food. Because what did Jesus say, man? And God said to, to his people Israel, man, don't live by bread alone every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's, there's. God wants us to use things to love him and to love other people. Idolatry creeps in and the implications of it, the reason it matters is we tend to start using people or using God to serve our dreams or to serve things that we want, things that we're trying to keep intact. What, now, you can have a dream that becomes idolatrous. Yeah, I must become this or I must have this happen for me or heaven forbid that such and such would happen. And if the the object of my hope is threatened or deferred, then my world just comes undone. Do you ever wonder? You know, I I know I've received Jesus and and I I feel like I'm committed to him and I love him, and yet sometimes my heart just gets so off the rail and I just have such a lack of love for him. And where does that vacuum come from? Well, it's usually because there's other things that have grabbed my attention that, 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 I'm, that I'm loving more. Or, or why, why do I have such a constant pattern of, you know, of, of anger or of bitterness towards people or ways that it comes up? Well, there's something that's being blocked. There's God, you know, we tend to not love God if he threatens to take away that which I'm really hoping in. One of the most loving and yet difficult things God does for us is if he knows there's an idol we're chasing, he cuts it off. He waits till we start to just skitz out because he wants us to realize, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking life in the wrong place. I want to close by reading another portion of Wallace's speech, which is actually kind of closer to the opening. He's, he talks about what fuels these idolatries. He says, a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to automatically be certain of is, as it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. He said, here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to automatically be sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I'm the absolute center of the universe, the realist, the most vivid, the most important person in existence. He says, we rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially, socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It's amazing how biblically is in this thought. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the Bible says. He says, it's our own default setting. It's hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you are not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or it's behind you or the left of you or the right of you or it's on your screen, your TV, your monitor, your, your phone. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow. But your own thoughts and feelings are so immediate, so urgent, so real. He says, you get the idea. He says, please don't worry that I'm going to start getting ready to preach to you about compassion or others' directedness or the so-called virtues. He says, it's not a matter. Imam- this shows that he's not coming. You know, he's not coming out of a religious basis, but he says, it's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be so deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. He says, by the way of example, let's say it's an average day and you get up in the morning, you go to your challenging job, you work hard for nine or ten hours, the end of the day you're tired, you're stressed out, and all you want to do is go home and have a good supper, and maybe unwind for a couple of hours and hit the rack early because you have to get up and do the same thing the next day. He says, but then you remember there's no food at home. because you haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job. So now after work, you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket. It's the end of the work day. The traffic's bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get there, the supermarket's very crowded because, it's, because of course it's the time of day with all the people who have jobs. Also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping and the store is hideously, fluorescently lit, and infused with soul-killing Muzak or corporate pop. And it's pretty much the last place you wanna be, but you just can't just get in and get out real quickly. So you have to wander all over the huge, overlit stores, crowded aisles to find the stuff you want. You have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts. And of course there are also the glacially slow people and the spacey people and the ADHD kids who all block the aisle and you have to grit your teeth Try to be polite as you ask them to let you by. Eventually, finally, you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there are not enough checkout lines open, even though it is the end of the day rush, which they know. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your fury out on the frantic lady working the register. That's just a great, such a great picture of how my desires, the world being around me, is really what's at the core of my idols. My idols serve me. And the, the, anything I put hope in is that it'll give me life. And, and the irony is, I'm thinking if I put my hope in this, then I can control life. But those things actually start to control me. And when I can't get through the shop, through the, the store quickly, or I can't get through the, the lane, I start sacrificing people on the altar of my idol. Right? Don't you? This is, it's, it's a worship issue. As opposed to the, the Lord God who, he's, he's the one before whom my strivings and my performances always are insufficient. And what the, what the God of the Bible demands is that I live 100% dependent on his grace, his gift that he's given me. I can't resort to my doings, to my control, I've got to acknowledge he has control. And again, it's, it's, it's charity. But it gives us the, the, the picture of his grace and his goodness. And that's what we need to ask hope for help for. Is Lord, help me live by grace today. Because I want to live by my works. I want to think I've got the tenacity or I've got the wits, the savvy to get through. But I don't. And that's why... We're That's why our hearts, like Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We're just looking for ways to make life work. And we've got the one who's made life work right there for us. And that's why Jesus lived for us and died for us and he's raised up. So let's, let's ask him uh, to help us to, to love him. Uh, because he loved us so much, he was willing to lay down his life for you. And none of your idols will ever die for you. They just make you die for them. Let's pray. Father, there's nothing new under the sun. Things that you warned your people about back when you were calling Abraham to to move into Canaan. And you said, don't marry those people because they're worshiping other gods. And it was messing them up. And then your people, as you brought them out of Egypt, you warned them about not going into idolatry. The first four commandments are all about the worship of you being central. Uh, and yet they... How they turn from you. And, and even at the very end of the New Testament, how John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We admit, Father, that's, that's us. It's still an issue. We thank you. That it's based on what you have done, not based on what we do, that gives us the hope if we trust in your son Jesus. So Lord, cause us to see you, to treasure you, to value you. Your spirit has to connect the spiritual synapses so that we don't just see that you're good, it's not conceptual, but that we know you, that we're known by you. We thank you that that is real life. Help us day by day by day. Open the pantheon. Clear out those other things we turn to and bow down before Jesus. Trust him to give us life. And we ask this because you're the only one who can give it to us. And so we ask it in his name. Amen.